Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to the Modes of Mouth podcast with Harry Benjamin and Tim Sylvie. This is the place where we meet some of the biggest names in and around motorsport, chat about their lives and everything in between. Now, we are delighted to be officially partnering up with the Brain Tumor Charity. It's a cause we care deeply about and through our specially dedicated podcasts uncovering those within the motorsport community who've been affected by these devastating diagnoses, fundraising events and generating awareness, we'll all be moving further and faster to help every single person affected by a brain tumour. For more details on how you can help, just check the link in the podcast description or head to thebraintumourcharity.org. Can you believe we're at season six of the Motormouth podcast? Thank you so much for your continued support. And we also wouldn't be here if it wasn't for our sponsors. This season, we're delighted to be teaming up with Grid Rival. Now, if your football mates are constantly going on about their fantasy leagues, well, now you can get your own back and create your own racing fantasies. Thanks to Grid Rival, including F1 and MotoGP, you can select your own team and drivers, interact with other fans and join or create your own leagues where you can trade on the go to make sure you have the ultimate lineup for each race. If you're as obsessive about motorsport as we are, make sure you get set up on Grid Rival today. Head to their website, it's gridrival.com, or download their app from your app store. 2021 leagues go live in February, so now is the perfect time to strategize and make sure you get a jump start by downloading the app and getting notified for when they do as the motorsport season begins to ramp up. This week on the show, we're kicking off a brand new series, season six. It's mad, isn't it, how many episodes we've done now, but we are not stopping here and are about to embark on our, well, biggest lineup yet, I would say. So with a brand new soundtrack, let's ease you in, shall we, and kick off with none other than Broadcasting Royalty. You'll know him as the face of the BBC's Formula One coverage, but he's gone on to a whole lot more since this week. We welcome Jake Humphrey to the most to mouth podcast thank you so much to you guys who continue to download and listen if you like it please do leave us a review it really helps us to get bigger and enjoy hello everyone tim sylvie here now before we introduce today's guest i need to head over to the land of amstrad inventor alan sugar and also home of circular sudoku a variant on the popular square grid puzzle game which was invented by professor peter higgins at the university of essex that's right my essex-based facts are back 
and I have a fresh library of interesting truths to regale about England's most bronze county over the next season of the podcast. For now, however, it's my Essex-based colleague, Harry Benjamin. How are you? Wow, thank you very much for that. I'm okay, actually. So the school I went to, is Alan Sugar lives lives right next door. Hmm. So, um, yeah, he's got a very nice big mansion. I bet he uh, has. Other big names include Bradley Walsh. Actually, no, not Bradley Walsh, his son. So, uh, uh, well... <laughs> Actually, his son is becoming famous. He's on a new show with Bradley Walsh at the moment. Yeah, yeah, no, he's a nice, he's a nice guy as well. Um, but apart from that, I'm good. I've discovered TikTok, um, yeah, yeah. and I went viral. So I'm really milking that for all it's worth. You did. So uh, going to try and become a TikTok influencer person. Um, so watch this space. How about you? Uh, yeah, I'm good. I'm good, thank you. Uh, not much to report. Um, I'm pleased that my Essex-based facts are back. I've got a whole mm. new resource. So plenty more of that to come. You'll be very pleased to hear. Uh, anyway, enough of our ramblings. Shall I introduce today's guest? Yes, let's do it. So today we are joined by a man who's almost as tall as Harry. Jake Humphrey, standing at six foot four, is a man who has, through hard work and talent in equal measure, propelled himself to stardom through broadcast and business. He's a very familiar face on our screens for many years, fronting the likes of Premier League footy on BT Sport, Comic Relief, Newsround, Bamzuki, Sports Round, Football Focus, Match of the Day, Olympic coverage, Sports Personality of the Year, and of course, BBC's excellent coverage of Formula One for four years. On top of that, he's an author and businessman, being the co-founder of production company Whisper, with another of our former guests, David Coulthard, who's heavily involved. He even has his own hugely successful podcast, the High Performance Podcast, alongside Damien Hughes. Delighted to have him here. Jake Humphrey, welcome to the Motormouth Podcast. What a lovely introduction, gentlemen. Thank you very much. How are you both? I'm just keen to know how and why Harry's gone viral on TikTok. I mean, that's like the ambition for everyone for 2021, right? It's mad. I put, um, what was the first video I did? I did a little, it was almost like a little comedy skit about uh, the new Aston Martin team and try, because they've got this, the longest name ever now. It's Cog- like Aston Cogni- Martin, Cogni- yeah, yeah, yeah. Cogni- F1 team. Um, and then just a little skit and then just, we were still calling it Force India, basically. So uh, that seemed to go down relatively well. There's a huge F1 TikTok fan base, apparently. So uh, Who knew? Amazing. Who knew? So I've got to, I've got to uh, do uh, the follow-up now. So uh, that's going to... Oh, Harry, uh, this is your year. Your year on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. But Jake, thank you for coming on. You've done everything under the sun. Um, but 2020 and, well, starting 2021, it's, uh, you know, life's changed, as we all know. How have you navigated everything? Well, I, thank you very much, first of all, Tim, for the mention of the of the podcast and um, high performance. And it would be so wrong of me to host a podcast, which is basically telling people all the time that life isn't about what happens to you, it's how you react to it. If I then sit here and say, 2020 was awful because all these things happened and, and I didn't know which way to turn. And I'm not saying that I always have the answers. All I'm saying is I always choose to be as positive as possible. So there was massive uncertainty because obviously my main income now is working as a football presenter. And in March, all football stopped. And if I don't work, I don't earn. So that was like, that was a worrying time. But I suppose you then ha- you're then left in a situation where you can either spend all your time worrying about that, which is going to achieve nothing. What was it Baz Luhrmann said? It's as effective as chewing bubblegum, didn't he? Um, <laughs> So I could either worry about it but couldn't solve it or I could just focus on the other the other stuff, which is the family. And I've got two little kids, age five and seven, and homeschooling begun. And we're, as, we talk to, as we talk to each other now, homeschooling started up again, obviously. But we just decided to have time with the kids that we've never had. And my life went from failing my A-levels to getting into telly to staying in telly. And then you're kind of in this 
world of clawing and grabbing and taking opportunities and never ha- being able to say no to anything because that might be the one big thing that leads to something else or never having a year off because everyone will forget about you. So I never had this period of sort of shutdown almost. Yeah. And years and years ago, someone said to me, another word for recreation, in other words, having fun is recreation. And I suppose the message there is if you have a shutdown period where you just enjoy life, see it as a period of recreation, like just building your energies up again. So it's not easy to build energy when you're in a house with two kids and you can't go anywhere and you're stuck. Um, but we just decided to make it as positive as possible right through to you know Christmas that we've all just kind of tried to enjoy. And our message to the kids is we've never had Christmas, the four of us. Hopefully we will never do it ever again. <laughs> so this is totally unique. Let's just be together. Let's yeah. just have a, a day where it's Christmas just the four of us um Jake do the, do the kids so, do the kids understand right. what's going on have you have you sort of explained oh yeah, the yeah. virus and everything yeah mm. yeah we've explained it all because I think that you it's not healthy to hide stuff from them because then they they make up the rest of it I remember Frank Lampard coming on our podcast talking about life at Chelsea and he said one of his great things is talking to the players all the time because he learned that if you don't tell the players something even if it's x and you know it's x you don't tell them it's X, they assume it might be Y. And then you have all these massive issues because they're assuming something's going on that isn't happening. So just communicate all the time um, is, is one of, it's actually David Coulthard taught me um, the importance of personal relationships. When yeah. I first started in Formula One, I thought, yeah, so cool, man. Speak to my agent, yeah. hide behind an agent, let everyone else do everything for me. And it was DC that said, no, son, personal relationships are the Absolutely. single most important thing. And so we've tried all the time to explain to them the great thing was we were able to say early on, listen, your kids, this isn't going to hurt you. It's not harmful for children, but you carry it. Therefore, you can't see grandma and granddad or granny and grandpa. They have to stay out of our lives yeah. for the best part of a year. Yeah. But you don't have to worry. But they're very good now. Like Florence wrote a note to Father Christmas that I put on Instagram saying, um, please sa- sanitize your hands before eating the mince pies. And <laughs> she knows what's the going on. To their own. Yeah. Oh, that's but you know, have, have you guys got kids? I do, yeah. I've got three. I definitely do not have um, kids. <laughs> so I, I have uh, one day. I have uh, two two boys, uh, five and yeah. three, and and a six month old girl who all she knows is lockdown. Obviously, so she she was born in this yeah, whole yeah, yeah. palaver. So um, it's a stressful old time. But you know, we've we've got a little garden. We can get outside a bit. We've actually put a little bell tent in the garden just so they've got somewhere to go. That's not our front lounge right. um so uh, yeah but, but aren't you know, they adaptable though do oh, you know yeah. what i mean they Huge. like they just deal with it tim and and yeah. that's been a real big learning curve for us is is not to take this thing too seriously because yeah. just be like the kids man just adapt yeah 100 percent. i've learned so anyway. much in about five minutes of you talking then <laughs> <and> i think <laughs> do, you, do you know what else is weird harry that, harry it, mate the depressing thing harry looks about seven years old so yeah. he's a long way away from yeah. me into our very about kids, isn't he? Yeah, <laughs> he, he is. Unfortunately, he's he's ha- Harry's twenty three. I'm I'm forty in a couple of weeks. Oh, shut up! Yeah. Man, I'm forty two. I know. I know. Sorry about that, but that's why it's so you know refre- to he- hearing what you're saying about you know when you were starting out and things like that you know and have not being able to say no to anything and worrying that you know how am I going to come across these people and you've got to be personal but you've also got to sort of have a a bit of a business savvy mind as well. It, it's it's a lot to. To, to sort of dive into. And then when you chuck in lockdown and the world comes to a standstill, you don't know which way to turn. So it is, it's quite, quite nice to hear I mean, all that. Mate, it's difficult. Look, you are at an age, and I, I don't know whether you feel the same when you look at Harry, Tim, but I'm now 42, Tim's 40. 
I would not swap. Although I'm 20 years older, 20 years more wrinkled, 20 years more exhausted than you, I wouldn't swap now for then. Because then, even though life was great and I was on children's BBC, I didn't know what the future held. I didn't know whether I was going to be that children's BBC presenter that you never hear from again. It was really competitive. I've never worked anywhere where like there's so many tears in the makeup room because this person said this to this person. This person was having a meeting with the controller of this channel and this show was being passed around and this person got overlooked for it. And this person, it was like, whoa! And I've never, that's never been my world. I just came from this little village in Norfolk. But that was because we were all feeling probably the way you are now, which is life's great, but there's massive amounts of uncertainty. Whereas now I sit here at 42 and I think, if my career stopped tomorrow, I'd be really proud of the last 20 years. Um, And I kind of probably for the first time ever, really, in the last couple of years, I just know myself, which is a bit why the podcast mm. started, really. Before, I'd never have done that, because I'd have been like, I can't talk about mindset and high performance, because people will look at me and think, like, you're just an idiot from kids telling you, what do you know about it? Yeah. Whereas now I think, do you know what? I really believe this stuff, so I'm just going to say it. And if it's not for you, ignore it, no problem at all. If it is for you, maybe it'll help. But I wouldn't want to be where you are, because it is uncertain. It is unser- yeah, it's an uncertain yeah. age, Harry. Yeah, but- no. Listen, mate, work hard, have a plan, know that every single thing you do every single day takes you somewhere, either to a place you do or don't want to go. So Mm. Matthew McConaughey came on our pod and said, don't leave crumbs. In other words, don't have to go back tomorrow and pick up the crumbs you left yesterday. Just make all the right decisions on your way. Yeah, absolutely right. And it's funny, you you mentioned about um, knowing yourself. I think that's so true. As you as you get as a bloke, anyway, talking from my own personal experience, it sounds like yours is the same. When you reach your sort of mid thirties ish, you start to know yourself. It, it definitely took me yeah. till at least thirty five before I was like, right, I'm starting to understand who I am now. And even into my later thirties, thirty eight, even now, I'm just starting to feel like I'm. I know my place in the world. I know my industry. I get it. But it's taken a long time. I was a total knobhead for many, many years. And where are um, you? Oh, a complete knobhead. Why? why, why? Arguably, still is. But yeah, some would say. I don't know. I just feel. I, I think I was very immature for a, for a number of years, and it t- just took me a long time to grow up. I, I went through phases in my twenties, like most people do, where I was, I was slightly out of control, and it took me a long time to just to calm it, get my shit together, and then learn to be comfortable in my own skin and be confident and and feel like. I know my, I know what I'm doing, especially at work. You know, it's taken me literally 15 years to understand what I do in my day job and, and feel like now I can talk about it with people with confidence. Um, but it took a long time to get there. Anyway, it's not yeah. about me. I do, what I would say also, Harry, like when we talk about it like this, don't you then think, all oh, right, I need to get to where they are. You yeah. actually can't get, you can't get where we are yet, right? And also what you're going to go through over the next 10 years in your sort of 20s is the most formative exciting and amazing time and you have to go through all of this stuff to come out of the other side do you know what mm-hmm. i mean it's like you can't find your path unless you're on it and all too often i think i i talk a lot about resilience and young people particularly i worry i've done really well for myself and i'm talking to you from this beautiful house in the countryside and my kids have anything they want where's their resilience going to come from and every uh, we seem to be in this world now where people make a plan they go i'm going to do this and then the route they take is difficult, right? So they think, oh, shit, I'm on the wrong path. I better go down that path. They don't realise that the struggle is part of the journey. And you're not on the wrong path. Every path is difficult. Every journey, halfway through, you will feel like you're a failure. 
But don't stop at that point. That's the time to dig in yeah. and push through because it's the really successful people who don't give up at that moment and push past that, you know? For, forget an interview with Jake Humphrey. This is life coaching for me. <laughs> Lie down. <laughs> Lie down on the sofa, Harry. Let's talk. Um, actually, what, I'm, glad, I'm glad I've got this record. I'm just gonna, if ever I feel a little bit low, I'll just re replay just, it. Sorry. I've got it on record. This is probably not at all what you wanted to talk about. It's, I'm sorry, I'm no, sorry. No, I'll, just, I'll just answer the question. No, this is perfect. This is a bit... We did one with a guy called Roddy Basso, who um, is the, the new CEO of the E1 um, power, uh, electric, all-electric powerboat series. Series. And, uh, nice. we, and we went off on tangents with him. We ended up talking. He used to work for NASA, so that immediately got us going on the universe and and the greater bit, the greater good. And, oh my god, you know, just like mind blowing stuff. So we, we don't mind a tangent here or there. But while we're on uh, performance, why don't we? Just, or, or, we were going to touch on it later, but let's do it now. Let's talk about your podcast because th this has been a huge um, thing for you. It's done incredibly well. What? Why did you start it? And and how's it going? And then. I want to know from you the question you ask your guests, what is high performance in your eyes? Yeah, great. Well, well, okay, so the reason why this podcast was created, and I can trace it absolutely back to uh, March 2009 and my arrival in Formula One. Um, so I grew up in a little village in Norfolk, and real quick praise of the story is uh, failed my A-levels, which meant I had to go back to school to retake them. You know, I was just the most normal average kid ever, right? So at eight, 17, 18, however old you are, when you do your A-levels, I failed them, went back. My, and the day I returned to school, my politics teacher had a letter from a local TV company wanting politics students to go on and talk about politics on a really super local cable TV show. Harry So Young, cable TV doesn't even mean anything to him. So I went on. And I, when I got there, I said, listen, guys, I failed my A-levels. All my mates have gone off around the world. They're doing exciting stuff. I am like the dick of my family. I'm a nightmare. Can I just come and do some work experience? And they used to pay me five quid a weekend to move sets around, answer phones. Like, we're talking here, Harry, I'm five years younger than you are now, right, when this is happening. Moving right. sets. And, and it was kind of cool, and I just found I enjoyed it. And then I used to do little bits of presenting because they couldn't afford to employ presenters, and I just found it easier. And I worked with co-presenters that would sort of cry with anxiety about having to go on and do presenting. And I'm there thinking, just give me all the links, man. I, I just... I. I can't explain it. From minute one, I found it easy. And then the male presenter left. And this is a channel that no one's watching. So it was, it was the best place to make all of my mistakes. And they then offered me the chance to be a presenter. And they doubled my money. So I used to earn five pounds cash to move sets around Saturday and Sunday. And they doubled it to a tenner. So I'd work there all weekend, queue up on a Sunday afternoon after doing the live show, three hours long as a presenter and get my 10 pounds cash. But I used to look at, and that was the where the seed was sown for wanting to be in broadcasting. I never, it wasn't something I grew up wanting to be a TV presenter, I don't think. But then I thought, right, I, I want to attack this. And we'll talk about, you know, my sort of non-negotiable behaviours maybe later, but one of them is to be all in. That is one of my traits of high performance. So I thought, right, if I'm going to do this, all in, I'm going to be a TV presenter. Um, but I thought that I'd never get to the top because I thought there was a secret that I didn't know. And I used to look at these really successful people. And then I ended up on Kids Telly, brilliant. And then the Formula One job came up and um, I managed to land that. And when I got into the Formula One paddock, I, I suddenly had this opportunity to talk to globally famous people, billionaire team owners, um, high achieving team principals that were creating and putting together teams, drivers who were really struggling or really flying at the time. And I was able to just say to them, well, what's the secret? And every single one of them 
to a man or woman said to me, I don't have a secret. A lot of them came from a background like all of us have, just an average life where they just decided they wanted something and they went and got it. And then I carried that with me. So everything I've done from that period has been with this mindset of there is no secret. Literally anything you want and wherever you come from, with the right mindset, you can achieve it. And I'm totally aware that sometimes that sounds a bit churlish or a bit crass because I'm a middle-class, middle-aged white bloke from a lovely part of England, right? A lot of people have much harder lives than me. But that was also something that I wanted to explore. So we've spoken to people on the podcast like Sia Colisi, the first ever black springbok captain who was so hungry as a child, his grandma could only feed him sugar water to get him through the night till he could get to school and get a meal. Or Nims Perger, who was a former special forces operator and a Gurkha, who was born again into total poverty in Nepal, but through mindset decided he wanted to be a special forces operative for the British armed forces, and so went and achieved it. And both of them say, please don't think that circumstance or situation or background or upbringing or parenting or politics or government or location could stop you being what you really want to be. In your mind, you can do it. And I I just was desperate for these kind of stories to be out there. And it's difficult to go to a TV commissioner and say, yeah, I know I'm a former kids presenter and I do a bit of football and I want to do a whole TV show about mindset and positive mental attitude and things. But what's the way in? And podcasts, someone mentioned to me. And it came about because I had a meeting with someone and they said, tell me about your career. And I said, yeah, it's great, man. BBC, BT Sport, CBBC, production company, Whisper, it's great. And they said, so what's yours in terms of your presenting? What do you own? And I was like, well, how do you mean? They said, well, do you just work for other people or do you do, you do your own thing? And I was like, well, I work for other people, but I like that. And they were like, you, you have no ownership of anything in your life. You're just sort of working for others. You need your own thing. What do you want that to be? And that's when I said, oh, I'd love to do this high-performance mindset stuff. And they said, podcast is the way in for you. And then I was this close to not doing it because I, I, I didn't really listen to podcasts. I didn't know much about them. I started doing some research and I was like, what? I scrolled through like podcasts. I was like, there's thousands of these things. And suddenly, just as I thought about podcasts, I started to try and learn as much as I could about them and the way they work and what makes them successful. And I suddenly almost, almost daily far more famous and successful people than me were announcing, I'm doing a podcast, I'm doing a podcast, I'm doing a podcast. And I thought, nah, man, I'm not bothering with this. So I had a word with the same person. I said, look, I've had a look at it. I, I just I just think it's saturated. I don't think there's a space or a place for this. And they said, okay, just do one favour. Ring Fern Cotton, who does Happy Place, and just ask her about how her life is now compared to before. And she's an old friend from CBBC. So I picked up the phone to her as one of my closest friends, I said, look, be totally frank with me. Podcasts, what is, what's the crack? And she was glowing about the fact that you're in control. It's your own passions. You can then build a whole community around what you do. The community doesn't have to be massive. You don't need millions of people. If you've got a few thousand that really love what you do and buy into it, you all go on a journey together and it leads to events and other pods and merchandise and branding. And, and you, as long as it's authentic, it's a great thing to do. And so that was the moment I thought, right, I'm going to do it. But I still had concerns that people would look at me and not understand why I should be a high-performance person. So I was watching a documentary, and it was with Sir Trevor MacDonald, who is like proper legendary, right? But it was about the history of Buckingham Palace. And I didn't buy it because I was watching it thinking, 
I'm not sure Sir Trevor is a historian. And I think that he's probably had a historian tell him what to say, step off camera, and then he's delivered the lines. I, I can't have my podcast feel like that. So I was at Norwich City, and there was a guy called Damien Hughes doing a presentation to the Norwich City first team. And I'm quite good mates with Stuart Webber, who's the sporting director there. And he asked me, do you want to come along, sit at the back of the room? It's really for the players and their mindset, but you might like it. And I, obviously, I love all this stuff. So I watched the presentation from Damien and thought, there's the credibility. That's the answer for me. So I picked up the phone to him and I just said, look, don't worry about the hosting or the presenting. I can tell you everything you need to know about that. Would you consider doing this? And then a bit like you two, you start, you realise it just works. You're not really sure why, but it just has this sort of natural rapport and natural rhythm. And, and that was the beginning of it. And then I think the success has come from the timing. Yeah. What do people want in 2020? A bit of positivity. Absolutely, yeah. No, and, and it's been hugely successful. And, and how how's it going? I mean, how how is the the, the audience? And you know, how, where are you with it in terms of your reach? Yeah, it's been great. I mean, it's um, it's been doing really well in the charts. I think we've hit about three million downloads now wow. um, over the three series, which is greater than I ever could have imagined. Um, but. I, what I want this to be is the community that I mentioned a moment ago. What I, I don't want people just to have a little listen and go, yeah, that was kind of all right. I genuinely want this to be real. I want to have a proper impact with people. So I can't wait until lockdown is over and we can actually get people and we can all be in the same room. And the other thing that I'm excited about is that high performance. And the reason why I think it works is that there's nothing in life that's successful that isn't high performance. Clothing, cars, sport, business, travel it can all come under this umbrella of high performance. And that's where I think that the opportunities for us are pretty much limitless, really, Yeah, which, I, which, is, which is exciting. And the podcast will always be the anchor to where, wherever we go and whatever we do. Um, and I think the other reason why it's been good is, like, there's no messing about. There's no kind of marshmallow, floaty questions. It's, like, straight in. What's high performance and how do people get there? And I think the key that I always say to Damien just before we start the interview, I always say, listen, as always, just remember, this is not about boxing, football, rugby. This is genuine takeaways for people to improve their lives. And it's amazing how many people are out there willing to, willing to listen, willing to improve. And the biggest things for us are the comments on social media where people come and tell us, like, this has totally changed my life. I mean, we had one person that said he left his wife from listening to the podcast. Oh now, God. like, I'm not, I'm not recommending that we are the podcast for that. But that shows you that people are kind of listening to this and it's helping them almost make those big life-changing decisions that has perhaps felt right for a long time, but fear has maybe stood in the way of it. You know, people have changed jobs because of it. People have moved house because of it. It's like the big message is don't live in this state of inertia, you know? Yeah, no, amazing. People, it's, it's great to hear the, the passion behind it. Um, and how you know your, how varied your your career has been as well. I suppose, as you say, starting from from children's TV and then having now to having an ownership over over your broadcasting capability. It's it's great. Yeah. Um, now, a lot of our audience will obviously be be quite keen to hear about your your Formula One exploits, which I'm sure you know you you chat about quite regularly. Um, but you know, let's let's just rewind slightly to to 2009 and and mm. you know landing that job. You know, what was F1 ever on the radar for you before that and then talk us through those those first stages of oh my mm. oh my god i'm going to be the host of bbc formula one yeah so was it on the radar so no 
Look, when I landed the job, I was desperate to try and say to people, yes, I love it. I'm definitely good for this. But the reality is I liked watching it, um, but I was not a Formula One obsessive. And I think we could talk further about this, but I think maybe that helped in terms of a broad brushstroke, bringing a lot of people to the coverage on the BBC and me being able to ask the questions that I think people at home wanted to hear. The closest really... I got to motorsport. I mean, I live in Norfolk, so we've got a great heritage of motorsport. In fact, there's a tiny place called Rugger Drive, just a f- uh, half a mile from my house, where Ayrton Senna lived when he first came over here and raced for Van Diemen. Oh, and every wow. year on his birthday, we go and stick, a, we go and stick some flowers outside the house. Um, but I didn't grow up in a motorsport house. We didn't have much money. Formula One was an expensive thing to go and watch. The closest I came really was that my uncle was the European stock car champion in about... 1982, when I was <laughs> when I was a little lad. So uh, we used to look at the photos of him with his 80s moustache. He just used to wear a blue boiler suit and he would sit on the front of his superstock. So he was racing superstocks at a European level. To me, like basically you're Michael Schumacher. Yeah. So like Uncle Michael was like up there, like wow, <laughs> Uncle legend. Michael raced this guy. Um, and he also had a Ford Sierra RS Cosworth. And when you're a kid, classic. That, that's a cool car for your yeah. uncle to have. Um, so, so landing the job, like, uh, it still thrills me to think that this happened to me, you know? Um, because when you're on kids' telly, like we spoke about at the beginning, like you are a constant bag of doubt about what the future holds for you. And I really wanted to be a sports presenter. And I had a meeting with someone who was working at BBC Sport at the time, and they made it really clear that if you're not a former sports person and you're not a journalist your chances are pretty limited. And that morning I'd been hosting a game show called Mobster Lobster in the Blue Peter Garden where I dress up as a lobster and I pop balloons for the foam. And if there was a big starfish in the balloon, you got 10 points and a small starfish was five points. And when I said, look, I'd love to be fronting, you know, BBC Sports coverage of major world sports events. I remember this person saying to me, "Mm, Mm. quite a... uh, Quite a step from mobster lobster. As if, <laughs> as if to sort of make it absolutely clear that this is not this is not for you. A quick interruption to the show to remind you to check out our sponsors, Grid Rival. Grid Rival is an absolute must for any racing fan. I've been looking to join Fantasy Motorsport Leagues for ages, and Grid Rival does that and so much more with an experience like no other. Real-time fantasy games, the best content, and a community of fans. Grid Rival is a must for 2021. Get ready for the motorsport season with Grid Rival today. Fantasy Leagues go live in February, but make sure you head to their website gridrival.com or download their app from your app store so you're in pole position for when they do but there was an amazing guy there called Niall Sloan who was head of football and so I thought at that time football was probably the natural thing because it was a national sport and I loved it and so I spoke to him and said can I do some bits and pieces and being totally frank I'd been at BBC Children's BBC from 2001 and this is now probably 2007 2008 so six or seven years hosting BBC One in the afternoons, back then the audiences were two, three million people just before Neighbours and stuff. So you kind of had this sense that you'd got to a certain place in your career. And then I had to accept that the only way into BBC Sport was to go in, collect an ICN kit, stick it in the boot of my car, drive myself to third and fourth division football matches, go and collect a media pass, walk into the media gantry. No one really knew who I was in that world because they were all much older, sort of mainly men. 
um, who didn't watch children's BBC. So I kept myself to myself, walked in, plugged all my gear in. I'd then sit there and I worked, I'd worked with this guy called Rob Nothman, who's still at BBC Radio now. And he'd done some sessions with me just explaining how you write quick, quick reports. Um, and that was an invaluable moment for me to learn what is involved in being a sports broadcaster. Because I still get a lot of people now who come to me and say, I really want to emulate your career. And I say, that's great. But don't just do it because you want to be famous or you want to have Twitter following or something. Do it because you love writing and you love sharing and you love empathising with the audience and telling the story. So he taught me that. And then I just had to accept it. And I hated it. Like, I, I can't remember what I earned. Maybe 100 quid. But it felt like I'd slid right down the ladder. I was, like, just going to these games. I was getting crappy games. I often wouldn't even feature on Final Score or Radio 5 Live. I'd press the button and say... Jake Comfrey at Fulham. There's been a goal to Fulham or whatever. And then they'd go, okay, thanks, Jake. I'd wait. And I'd written this thing, 30 seconds update. I'm waiting. No. <laughs> no, they're not coming to it. And that was just the way it was. That was where I'd slid to. And I thought, wow, man, this is, I'm not sure this is going anywhere. And I was very close to not doing it. And I used to say to Harriet, this feels like hard work. I don't see it going anywhere. But then Niall, I was on the train on the way back from a news round shoot one day. And Niall called and said, the host of, um, final score can't host it this Saturday this was maybe on the Tuesday can you step in and that's a hard show that's like hours long you have to know all the reporters names and all that but that was the first little thought oh hold on a minute maybe uh, maybe they are spotting what I'm doing maybe this is going to work out for me and then a couple of days before I was in the office prepping for the show that was a big revelation for me was to see all the football and sports presenters would sit in the office and do their work in the week. That was like very different, you know, to what I expected as a TV presenter. So I was in there writing the script, prepping for the show. Niall walked in and he said to the PA who was responsible for the timings and also for recording the show, I remember him just saying, uh, can you record half a, half an hour of Jake's performance on Saturday? Um, just whichever half an hour you fancy recording, thanks. Obviously as if to say, you're on air for four hours, I'm going to look at half an hour of it and so you better be good for the whole time. Um, but that was an amazing moment. And I think what's the challenge for, for a lot of young people is you've got to take these opportunities when they come. But it's very difficult until afterwards to know that was the opportunity to kind of join the dots. Well, so it leaves you in a place where basically you have to make sure that you're all in all the time. Because as long as you're all in, whether it happens or not, at least you were all in at that moment and yeah. you can say, do you know what, I gave it my everything and yeah. it didn't work out. Mm -hmm. So I was then all in to trying to make myself a BBC Sport presenter. And and then I got news that Formula One had been secured by the BBC. Oh, I remember saying to Harriet, God, can you imagine landing that gig? And so I just sent an email to Nile and I said, look, I love Formula One. I'd love to be considered. And then it was a really heavy research job. Because he called me into his office and he, I remember him saying something like, what's a, what's a naturally aspirated engine? That type of question, just to sort of see early on what I was about. And then he said, I want you to create a side of A4 paper about how you would see the Formula One job being hosted. And I have it somewhere now, this side, this one piece of A4 where I mentioned David Coulthard and Eddie Jordan, actually. And I talk about going onto the red button after the race to just talk for hours as long as people want to listen to us. I talk about moving around inside the pit lane, which no one was doing at the time. Um, but I remember taking in this piece of paper and he, I walked in thinking, this is my big moment. And he said, thanks a lot. Stuck it on a great big pile. 
And I'm like, oh, right, so you've obviously got a lot of people <laughs> wanting to do this. Job. And I just thought, this, is, this isn't going to happen for me. And then a couple of days later, I got called to a meeting with him and Mark Wilkin, who had been producing Formula One when Murray Walker was commentating alongside James Hunt. So he was, he was in the commentary box and he was like, he knew his stuff. And we spoke for maybe 10 or 15 minutes. And then Niall Sloan said, do us a favour. Will you go and count the steps from here to the, uh, to the lifts? So I was knew at that point they were going to have a conversation without me in the room. And I remember, I can't remember whether I was anxious or just massively excited. I certainly had this sense that the future is based, my entire future is being created right now as I walk up and down the, these lifts to the, to the North, the North Lift Television Centre in West London. I walked back in the room and I remember they just said, Mr. Wilkin and Mr. Sloan would like to offer you the Formula One job. Oh. And I, I said, Mr. Humphrey would love to accept. Oh. Now, actually, yeah. do, you, do you remember how many steps it was to the lift? I don't think I was there. I think I was too anxious <laughs> to count. That. <laughs> oh, that's such but a cool I, story. I tell you what I do remember. I do remember not knowing when to go back in. Yeah. Awesome. So I oh. the lift. What, and I was like, do, like, if I leave it too long, are they going to discuss and eventually decide no? If yeah. they're about to decide yes, and I open the door, have I stopped? Like, whoa, what do I do? overthink what I do? it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just loitered around outside, and, and then it happened. And they, the first thing they said was, um, we haven't secured anyone else yet, so uh, we'd appreciate it if you, um, if you just kept it to yourself. I obviously had to phone my wife and tell her. Tell her that and you're not going to see her for the next 12 months because exactly, you're bugging yeah. off around the world. Quite, she didn't quite understand what was involved, I don't think. <laughs> she was really happy for me, and... Uh, and the next thing was to go meet Eddie Jordan at his offices in, in West London. That was, the, that was then the, the really exciting period of going and meeting all the teams, meeting Eddie for the first time, meeting yeah. DC for the first time. And you and DC and Eddie clicked pretty quickly and um, became a fan favourite. Um, everyone felt very warmly about your group. Could you feel that at the time or, or did, you, did that only become, um, did you only realise that later on after you'd finished? No, I think it, I remember the very first. Um, well, I remember meeting Eddie for the first time and thinking, "Wow!" And I'm sure you, you guys would have met Eddie. Yeah, years, we've right? had him on the show. Well, he went to this office in um, in the middle of London, and he was just this mad whirlwind of, "Ah, you want a coffee? Well, then make yourself a coffee. Come on, let's go. Let's meet. Right? Who the hell are you? Who are you? Who are you? What are you? Do? You can't present. You look about seven. What are you doing?" And I was like, whoa, geez, who's this guy? And then I, I then went to um, China to see DC racing at the time. He was obviously coming towards the end of his career. But he was then really sort of considered and thoughtful and was understanding that this was a big departure for him. And um, I immediately was excited by how different they both were. China was also a really um, sobering experience for me where I was actually quite close to, to pulling out of it because I met DC, thought this is incredible. And I then, he then said, you can, you can stay in our garage and watch what we're up to. And Steve Ryder, who was hosting it for ITV at the time, was brilliant with me. We sat down outside one of the team motorhomes and he just was really honest and said, look, you've just landed the best job in the world. I'd love to have continued to do this job, but I wish you all the best. And he was, he was fantastic. And, I then went to the front of DC's garage and I'll never forget standing there. And in China, they have the huge, huge grandstand along the main straight. And it was 2008, it was rammed full of people, maybe 40 minutes until, actually less because the cars, 
the cars had left the garage, I think, so the pit lane was over. So maybe half an hour, 25 minutes till the race was about to begin. So it was a real hive of activity. And I stood at the front of the garage and saw Steve Ryder standing alongside Mark Blundell with one camera, one floor manager, cars zipping all around, team members running around taking stuff to the grid, 50,000 people a few feet away in this huge grandstand. And they looked so exposed. They were just there. There was no connection to anyone else. Obviously, the, the entire production team were in a room quarter of a kilometre away or whatever. He's just relying on his earpieces to know what's going on. And he was a master of, of broadcasting. <clears throat> and I looked at it and I thought, nah, man, I can't do that. That is like, that is not possible. I can't handle that. So I was very close then to, well, I was certainly doubting myself. Did I ever pull out or get close to pulling out? Probably not, but I certainly considered it in my own head yeah. whether that was a step too it, far. It's, it's funny though because when, when you say that, it it that rings um, so many bells for me because I, I I remember watching you in paddock. So I, I've been in F one since about two thousand and five, and I remember what I've watched all sorts of people present in the paddock over the years, and I've watched you do it um, in a similar sort of setup. You know, you have your little iPad there, and you're you're chatting away, yeah. and it cuts away, and you chat a bit, and then you come back to it. And I just think, how the hell are they doing that? Like, and how is this production coming together? And if the thought of doing that yeah. fills me with dread watching it. Did, did you, what were those nerves like? What were the emotions going through your head when those cameras first started rolling? That very first race, when the camera switched on, they're like, right, Jake, go. And it's just you yeah. presenting to the world. Did you yeah. absolutely yeah. shit your pants? Yeah. My goodness, didn't I? I mean, so obviously it all happened and we went off to Australia 2009 and I... And I remember there's a few things from that first race that really stand out to me. And the first one is standing in the paddock with David and Eddie over there, knowing that we're about to come on air. I thought really carefully about what the first thing I was going to say was. I'd had a quick chat on the phone with my mum and dad, who had obviously, like, their son had landed the Formula One job. They were out of bed. They were on the sofa, cup of tea, a bit of toast. And I was, I was acutely aware that everyone was going to make their minds up about me really quickly and actually a lot of people already had because when it was announced that I would be the Formula One presenter I I got a f it was something like 10 o'clock in the morning or 11 o'clock in the morning and we hadn't said this to anyone that we were doing this the three of us because it was the BBC's announcement and then my wife rang about half an hour after the announcement had been made and she was working at the time on Strictly Come Dancing at the BBC she was a production manager and she'd obviously snuck out of the office and she was in floods of tears and I said, are you all right? What's going on? And we'd been looking, for, the two of us had been excited about this day for months, man. I said, what's the matter? And she said, I remember her exact words. She was crying and through her tears, she went, I've just been on the internet. Everyone thinks you're going to be shit. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, really? Oh, God. And I was like, I remember saying, darling, we're, like, you don't need to worry about that. This is very different to kids' telly. You know, there's a lot of scrutiny. People will be like that. But I would just ignore it. Where did you, where did you read that? And she said, on the BBC Sport <laughs> website. So I was like, oh, no. And that was, do you remember they had this old 606 forum oh, where you could go on yeah, and talk about anything? Yeah. Like, and there was already a sort of a th thread of messages saying, why is this lanky weirdo from kids' telly going to ruin the sport that we all hold very dearly? And so I knew that I was maybe swimming against the tide in that respect. So therefore, I couldn't afford to have a bad first show. I'd signed a one-year contract. 
um, which was what I was offered. And obviously it was a one-year contract because they were taking a guy from Kids TV. So there's no, there was no safety net here, basically. Um, and I remember standing in the pit lane and it was when the PA was saying, on air in five, then I sort of thought... I. I used to get this thing early on in my career, I get it less now, where I would see someone else in the studio or near me and f- with all the energy in my body, I'd wish to swap places with them yeah. at that moment because I just didn't want to be where I was about to go. And there was a brilliant, brilliant um, assistant editor called Steve Aldous, who was my eyes and ears in the pit lane. I nearly got run over once in Turkey and it was Steve that for the first time ever stepped in front of camera, just grabbed my collar and yanked me back as Jarno truly in the Toyota passed about two feet in front of me and almost took my legs off. <laughs> and he was, he was the, sa- the only safety net I had in the pit lane. And I remember looking at him as, as the PA was giving us sort of three seconds to go. And I just thought, mate, you're standing there, chilling out, we're about to go on it. I am the one in the absolute firing line. Yeah, I'd love to swap this with you. And then 10 minutes later, you've heard the chain, you're starting to chat with the guys. At that moment, You'd rather be there than anywhere else on the planet. You mm. wouldn't swap jobs with anyone for all the money in the world. And I remember halfway through the show, Martin Brundle joining the three of us and saying, you guys look like you've been doing this forever. And it felt like that. It felt from minute one that the three of us gelled. And we just did. And, you know, as you said at the top, I've set up a production company with David. I speak to Eddie on a really regular basis. We've been on holiday together. And and it, it just... We just were like a sort of a little family. But then I was, there's a, there's a great phrase, which I love to use, which is everything you find easy, you once found hard, which is a good reminder for anyone that is going through difficult times um, that it will one day be easy. So I think if I did that job now, it would be easier. But at that time, it was very, very difficult for me. I was yeah. absolutely at my spare capacity just to get us through the programme. My legs would shake as we came off air. I'd be covered in sweat. I was really, really, really at my capabilities yeah. to keep that show on air. And I remember we did qualifying in Melbourne and I walked back into the production office and I sunk down and I was like, we've done it. And I was getting some lovely text messages from people and this was in the days before Twitter and stuff. I was getting some nice text messages and Ed, Ted, Ted Kravitz walked in who's obviously been around in that sport for years and went, well done everyone, now tomorrow we've got the actual race. Yeah. And that's when I thought, oh my shitting hell. Yeah. It goes I've got to on. do this again tomorrow. Oh. And hold on, we've only done qualifying. Like the actual main event has not yet happened. Um, <laughs> but we, and it was wonderful. I loved every single minute of doing that job. And for me, the real thrill came on that red button where we used to finish the show. We'd say, right, we'll go on the red button. And then at first, maybe one or two people would press red and join us. Before long, we had thousands of people sticking yeah. with us. Yeah. We were using the iPad. We were trying to get messages and trying to be as interactive as possible. And I love now that I watch the UK coverage on Sky and I see so many similarities. I see so many things that we learned in that time. And I'm I'm flattered, really, by what I see yeah. because I recognise yeah, it. Yeah, well, the, the, the forum, you know, the, the whole red button thing was such a big part of that coverage and people loved it. People grew to absolutely love that piece of the coverage. But listen, from from an outsider's perspective, looking into that time, we couldn't tell that you were um, nervous like that. I mean, it's, it came across immediately well. And I have to admit, I was one of those people that was like, hang on a minute, what's this bloke from CBBC doing presenting the F1? But you did a, yeah. you did a terrific job and, and everyone had very warm feelings about it. So 
congratulations for that. Whereas brilliant. I'll show my age here again and go, you were the first presenter of Formula One, which I ever started watching. No so, way. Wow. <laughs> you all will have a new, Jake. God, uh, you were like 10 down years ever old. Since. Um, no. But we come to a very important part of the show where we break things mm. up a little bit with a very, very important quiz. I'll hand over to Harry to explain more. Yes, we've, uh, we've been talking so much. We need to squeeze this in before we let you go, Jake. And you've been talking about, you know, going all in. This is when you really do need to go all in. This is the hardest quiz in motorsport. It is called Motor Mouths. There is a heavy, heavy leaderboard. 14 points up for grabs. Four right. questions. Uh, four bits of, uh, four clips, basically, that you'll hear. Um, and yeah. you listen to them and then basically say what you hear. Give us the context. And they're all related to you and your career. So you should theoretically be able to uh, box this. <laughs> <laughs> right. So let, let's start with clip number one. Here we go. Looked good, didn't they? You were happy with them? We were happy with them. Were you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean all your ratings were good. Ratings were very good, yes. I would say that, though, wouldn't I, as I present the show? No, you would only tell the truth. Of course I would. Listen, lovely to catch up with you, and uh, maybe we'll see you here for the next Grand Prix in three weeks' time. You stay here. We'll do just that. Okay, thanks very much, Bernie. Lovely to see you. Enjoy the day. Take care. Nice to see you. Right, uh, Bernie's off to chat to more people. I love that. But Bernie's like, <laughs> right. you, you stay here. What, 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 what on earth yeah, is he yeah. on about? Um, context. I remember that well. Uh, context One of the strangest is... interviews I've watched. Yeah, context. Yeah. Well, it was always strange with Bernie. It was that you've always had a plan of what you were going to do. And he was the master of knowing that if I just say some crazy stuff, they'll latch onto that and actually ignore the real story that needs to be discussed. So it was always difficult. Um, and I think actually, really briefly, sometimes it helped me being a guy from kids' TV because I think sometimes people would look at me and go, remember with Max Mosley when he described loonies, he talked about loonies talking about the potential breakaway. And, he, and I remember thinking... I don't think you'd say that to a Andrew Benson type, really strong, well-recognized, successful F1 journalist. You look at me and think, you're just some young guy off kids' telly. And I liked being underestimated like that. But I think that was a conversation with Bernie. Could it have been in China, maybe, where we were to, where the ash cloud had uh, started to impact Formula One? And we yes. were there, and it was like, you're not going home. You're going to stay here for weeks. We can't get back to the UK. And we, that was the most remarkable experience for us trying to get back home across Europe. We were just like, get us a flight anywhere. We ended up, I think we ended up in Germany. And then Ted Kravitz drove us into France. Then we got a train to Calais. And then we got the ferry across to the UK. And we were like, oh, we're back in England. Yeah. Yeah. You are absolutely right. right. Yeah, I'm going to give you full marks for that as well. Uh, that is, of course, the, your interview with Bernie Eccleston. Just before, all about that and about tyres as well, apparently. Just before we move on, Harry, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Th that is... I, I don't know if I've told you the story, and I'll tell you... I won't do it now because it, it'll bore everyone, but that same journey that you're talking about, Jake, that 2010 with the ash cloud in Iceland or wherever it was yeah. that covered all of Europe... I was working at Yas Marina Circuit in Abu Dhabi at the time, and um, a girl who was working for the same organization as me, I was contracting out there, was working at the Chinese Grand Prix for, for the then Force India and uh, doing all VJ's parties and all that sort of stuff. And um, she got stuck in China, and I had to meet her in Abu Dhabi to escort her back to the UK. And it took us four days to get back. And during that four days, um, I dumped the girl I was with, started dating the girl I was traveling back with, and we moved in together the following Monday and got married a year later and now have three kids. 
So there you go. The ash cloud wow. was, was, a, was Look a wonderful. Look that, thing. mate. Yeah. The ash cloud determined your future. No, no, mental. That is quite. That's a very cool. Like, how did you meet story? Right. That'll be very so, cool yeah, to tell yeah, your yeah, kids. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Question two. So let's get back to some serious back, business. Back please. to the business. Question um, two. Here is your second clip. Have a listen to this. Here we go. Oh, very good. Right, this is it then. Here goes my flyer. Use your cows. You get a double burst storm at the start finish line. And again, cows. Oh, he's got it. Is he going to get the breaking point? Oh! Rallycross style. Where did you find the handbrake? <laughs> right, what's happening there? That is embarrassing. That is embarrassing, man. <laughs> I hated that day. <laughs> that was about the fifth, so that was, the fifth go at it as well, oh, I think. Mate, <laughs> I was horrendous. So that is me in the Rebel Simulator, isn't it? And I think, I think Christian had set a time... Well, DC had set like a an average time that we had to beat, and then Christian had either beaten it or got close. And I just couldn't. I think it was it in Monza. You guys obviously seen the clip. Was it Monza? Yes, correct. Yeah, that's right. So I kept on trying to drive a bloody lap of sodding Monza in this bloody Formula One car, and every single time I got to the first chicane, I just spanned the car. I could not. <laughs> I was you got to the point where I was holding the steering wheel like I was holding a newborn baby. I was not letting go of that thing, and then it would just go. And I, I'm sh- I still to this day believe someone somewhere was pressing a button. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have the... Never we'll leave it there. We won't mention points. Christian's that is, name. Yeah. <laughs> that is three points in the bag, nevertheless. Uh, that's a hell of a strong Love start. It. You're really climbing your way up the leaderboard here. Uh, you've beaten Karun Chandok already, who's on three and a half not, points. Not He's difficult. at the bottom, so you're way ahead of him. Oh, Karun. Um, okay. nice guy. He is, he is one of the loveliest guys, but mm. you're being him. Here we go. Clip number three, please. Here, Let's have a listen. Here we go. Wow, you were right so quick. It's because I spent all my time texting Nicole. It's <laughs> idiot. <laughs> Good now, do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah, that is uh, me deciding to wind Lewis Hamilton up because at the time he was dating Nicole Scherzinger, which was always interesting for me because... She used to see a lot of us, and I guess when she was in the UK and not travelling, she would watch the races and see us there. So I ended up quite often sitting next to her watching Grand Prix. Like, that was quite fun. Like, I'm this little kid from Norwich sitting next to Nicole Scherzinger <laughs> watching her boyfriend race in a Grand Prix in some far-flung location. And for a laugh, I pretended that I was uh, texting her on the sly, which obviously <laughs> I wasn't. Let me just clarify uh, that in case Lewis... He took it very well. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, that's all. Yeah. Uh, three points. Yeah, you're smashing this, Jay. All right, you've got one more clip and then a bonus point, but you're looking good. You might well be the top of the leaderboard. Final clip right. for you. Have a listen to this. Here it comes. Does the man that hosts Formula One on BBC not know the name of the racing driver at the end? No. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a Formula Two, Jay? Right, so a few things there. Uh, what show are you on? Who was the voice at the start? And uh, yeah. who were you sat next to? Jeepers. Well, I think it was question of sport. Correct. So who was on your team? We've got him now. Patrick Hilty was the guy saying, yep. do yes. not know. That is correct. So the voice at the end there about f- who mentioned Formula 2, is that someone else on my team or was that someone else? Someone else? Uh, that is someone else on your team, I think. Uh, Matt Dawson? Correct. Correct. Uh, and there's one, one more. more. I only got that through thinking he's a team captain. Yeah, what was the last question? 
Uh, so who who's the other person on your team? I need one more. There's three of you on there, or you included that. You, Matt Dawson, and you've presented with him before. He's uh, he's also a sport presenter, but it's, he seems to be on telly for what seems like all day on a Sunday these days. He's got a very good first name. We've got him. Tim. Oh. Loves the brunch. Oh, Tim Lovejoy. Hey. Correct. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> that is great. You were on Question of Sport, unable to answer a question um, involving some F1 driver. And I saw that and I had no oh, idea it was. I couldn't, I couldn't recognize the face of it. And who uh, was yes, it? That what is, was the answer? Uh, the, the clip ran out. I didn't know. Mm-hmm. I, I tried to look at it and think I could not. I mean, I, could, I mean, I'm, I'm too young, so what would I know? But um, I couldn't right. recognise him. Um, but I'm going to give you two and a half points for that one because we Woo-hoo! have to the end. Generous. Uh, so your bonus question is, for one extra point, 2009 was your first year hosting the BBC's F1 coverage, of course. Correct. Jensen Button won the championship with Braun, but who came second in the Drivers' Championship? No Googling. Okay, so obviously Rubens Barrichello had a massively fast car because they were leading the way. I'm, and I know that someone else, um, Red Bull. So Braun started out really fast, but they didn't have the money to develop the car, so they were like dominating and finishing one, two, and then they started to slip and slide. So 2000. 10 was Sebastian Vettel. So I'm going to guess. I don't think I don't think Rubens came second in the championship, but this might be me doing him a massive disservice. He may well have done. I think he came third. And maybe Sebastian Vettel came second in the championship because Red Bull improved the car because I don't think Mercedes were anywhere near at that point. Obviously, um, yeah, uh, I McLaren, mean- sorry, weren't anywhere near at that point. Mercedes weren't in because they became Braun. Uh, you've, got it, you've got it, Jake. You've got it. Yeah, got it yeah. One. Great. You've got it in one. Twelve. You've still got it. Twelve and a half points Woo-hoo! in total, which puts you on the leaderboards. That's beaten Coulthard, in... surely. You've beaten. You've smashed Coulthard. And He's Jordan on the first page. Um, you are. Let's do that. You are joint with Brendan Hartley. Oh, uh, but that puts you in fifth position. Right. Very good. So, so if I've got know, every question right, how can I only be fifth? <laughs> because the latest person goes ahead of whoever did it. That's oh, how we're running it. So it. even if you get 14 points, if this quiz is got terrible. You, you got you, you got uh, It's the worst <laughs> point system ever. Lads, do turn it into a TV format, please. <laughs> <laughs> you can be I'm the sure host. Whisper will have it, right? Yeah, you could do it. We'll, we'll pitch it to you. I'll write your pitch and send we'll it to you. That. that was very good. Now, listen, <laughs> before we let you go, we have three final quickfire questions for you, which we ask yeah. all our guests, and they come up with all sorts of, all sorts of different and interesting answers. The first one Lovely. for you, I'll kick off. So what's got you excited at the moment? Um, well, uh, that's a really good question. I think... Um, I think the, I mean, I suppose this dates this conversation a bit, but it, at the moment it is the potential vaccine for the coronavirus. That, and what, is, what is exciting for me about that is that I, I was saying to Harriet last night, one day we will go out for dinner, really just go out for a meal, nothing special. We might pop for a drink afterwards or go to the cinema and hug our mates when we arrive at the restaurant. And suddenly we will realise all those years that we just took all of that sort of stuff for granted. Yeah. We will finally, finally really realize what it means to have good proper human connection mm, completely um brilliant well, i can't wait for those days 
I think you'll have a great answer for this one as well. How much of your success do you think is is down to luck and right place, right time? And how much is down to sheer hard work? Yeah, so one of my mindsets, right, is that luck is definitely around because let's say the BBC not buying Formula One, I would never have been able to even land the job at the BBC if they hadn't bought it. So I was lucky that I was there at the right time. And then when I knew we were having Florence and BT Sport bought the rights to the Premier League and I was maybe ready for a new challenge then, I was lucky that they came for me. But you can't spend your life either blaming a lack of luck or focusing on luck or waiting for luck because you can't control it. So in life, you can only control the the things that are within your grasp. So when the BBC got Formula One, that was the lucky part, but the luck ended there. After that, it had to be sheer hard work, graft and effort to win the job and then to deliver the job. When BT Sport ring up and say, we'd like you to come across and be our football presenter, I'm lucky that they decided to call me, but there's no luck in then being there for seven years and making that a success. So... I would say, yes, of course, luck plays a part in a lot of our lives, but you still have to take a big grasp of all the opportunities that come your way. You can't bemoan luck and you can't wait for it either. Great answer. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Your final question before we let you get on with your day, and you can be as deep or as basic as you like with this, what are you scared of? Um, I'm certainly scared of um, small spaces. I'm claustrophobic and I hate lifts and stuff. I think... um, the only thing that re- I am a I am a hypochondriac, so like I got this pain yesterday in my hand while I was doing weights in the gym, and I don't just think, oh yeah, I've obviously got a little pull the muscle in my hand or I've bruised it or something. Like I go to worst case scenario straight away, which is then heightened. You might be able to relate to this, Tim. When you have kids, you're like, as soon as they have a cough or as soon as they say my leg hurts or as soon as they, you think, what what could it be? What, right, and then you get on Google and that's really yeah. bad and it like horrendous. So. Um, I am definitely a hypochondriac. Yeah. Yeah. That's fine. Jake Humphrey, it's been an absolute privilege to have you on the show. Thank you for coming on. Uh, I mean, it's been brilliant. So Jake Humphrey, thank you so much for coming on the Most Mouth Podcast. Gentlemen, thank you. Can I just say how nice it is to sit and just reminisce about those brilliant days in Formula One and you've done it so nicely. So thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for the time. Keep up the good work. Before you go, one final reminder to check out the team at Grid Rival, the place to be for the 2021 motorsport season. If you think you really know your F1 and MotoGP, fancy yourself and making a bit of extra cash, setting up your own or joining a fantasy league, and making sure you have the best driver lineups for each race, all whilst getting access to the best motorsport content and chatting to like-minded fans, then Grid Rival is the place for you. Leagues go live at the end of February, so make sure you're at the front of the queue by getting notified as soon as they're ready by heading over to their website, gridrival.com, or download their app from your selected app store and get prepped for a brand new season of motorsport with Grid Rival. Now, if you're a really lovely person and fancy supporting the podcast further, just head over to Patreon or the link is in the podcast description. We've got some great goodies and bonus content to give you if you sign up. Just search Motormouth Official on Patreon and there are three levels of membership to choose from. Thank you so much for listening to the Motormouth Podcast. Do make sure you give us a follow on our socials, Twitter at Motormouth underscore, Instagram at Motormouth underscore official and Facebook, just search Motormouth. You can also download the Motormouth app where you can get exclusive video content from MMTV, create your own 
social profile to interact with other fans and check up on all the latest happenings with whatever motorsport takes your fancy. We're also proud to be supporting the Brain Tumor Charity too, so make sure you check the links in the podcast description to find out how you can help cure brain tumours quicker. Don't forget to like, subscribe and review. And until next time, you've been listening to the Motormouth Podcast.